So like, um, he might be sus if he pulls out the acoustic guitar and plays Wonderwall. Wow. Like, like. <laughs> or anything by Ed Sheeran. Oof. If uh, <laughs> if he picks up the if if he comes to the party with an acoustic guitar, and uh, he plays John Mayer. Don't trust mm, him. Yeah. Don't trust him. Your body's not a wonderland. <laughs> what crime scene deal with that guy? everyone i'm your host jason miles and welcome to another episode of this is revolution podcast thank you for joining us before we start if you're new to the channel please hit subscribe and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live we're constantly adding cross streams to other channels and adding new shows speaking of shows this past saturday we had a great one with c Derek varn of varn vlog where we discussed the idea that there is a resurgence of organized labor I'm sure MT is putting links in the description as we speak, putting links in the chat. Uh, we also opened up the phone lines on the Saturday show. There was a really cool, I don't want to say debate, but conversation around um, what Derek was talking about with another labor organizer in a different state. It was, it was a great call. Uh, it was a great show. I think we went about three hours on that one. Uh, so it's something we'd like to do more. Uh, MT has, has mentioned, also Mijin Bajlan has mentioned, they'd like to see more phone calls on Saturdays. But as many of you know, those phone lines ain't free. That said, if you enjoy what we do here in TIR and don't want to make the yearly or monthly commitment to show your, you show your support with revolutionary merch. <laughs> you know, I think the faceless, 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 Jesus, I'm trying to read so fast. The faceless voice of reason, the mass precarious producer, M. Tucson, can explain this even more. Please welcome M. Tucson. Hello, hello. So good to be with you again. So good to talk to you about what to wear when it's brick outside. Brick? Do you know what brick means? Uh, drugs? Brick is cold. Oh, because where I'm from, it means drugs. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it also means drugs where I'm from. 
But when someone says it's brick outside, that means it's cold. I would assume if someone says brick outside, someone has drugs in large quantities. <laughs> I told you this story about the They're first time I ever saw. I told you the first time I ever saw a drug bust, I was like nine, ten years old. And uh, they were pulling out bricks out of my friend's sister's boyfriend's car. The unmarked went up behind him, so they started pulling bricks out. Wow. I was like, and it looked like real little bricks. Package Do you know what TIR merch is not? It is not bricks. It's, it's not. not drug related. We don't have bricks for you. We, don't. we have hoodies. We have pullovers. We have snapbacks. Can you show the people? Can I show the people? Can you, I? You can do multiple things because you. Oh my goodness! Look at that. All things are possible with the anti-capitalist TIR logo. In three different colorways. And the Wu Tang one. Forget the the Wu -Tang. I love the Wu Tang one. <laughs> yes. Got you some snapbacks. Got mouse pads. Mugs. Mugs. Shut up. Not one mug, but two. Two mugs. Two mugs. Two, two mugs. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Those mugs. <laughs> Classic Anglo pessimism. Classic. As Someone well, in chat is saying about the rebranding of homelessness to unhoused. Um, when I was at the, when I was in West Oakland, the encampment, the woman that we would call like the mayor of the encampment, said, "We're not homeless, we're curb adjacent." Hey. Hey. <laughs> we're curb adjacent over here. Hey. Jason. <laughs> What are you what are talking about? Sorry, I wish I could make that up. True story. Um, can I say I... something real quick? Please. Okay. Well, we're get we're also getting ready for Valentine's Day uh, on this revolution, and we are taking your relationship questions anonymously. And on that note. <laughs> If you want to, you can just submit stuff about Jason's love life. That's good, too. Well, we're going to get into it. Send us your relationship questions. We will have them answered by qualified adults or at least qualified uh, minors. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Either way, they'll be qualified. How? I don't know. Like have Phoenix answer your questions? Yeah. <laughs> Aww. Qualified minor. Every answer will be, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Someone has a question already. It says, what amount of farting is acceptable during the first date? Don't ask me that question. Hey. I'm a first date farter. I can't trust a woman that doesn't break wind. I do. What is this love line? Yes, it is. It's lefty love line. <laughs> and you're gonna love it. Let's ask another person, uh, first date farter. He is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He's my homie, my dog. I wish you guys could see his face in the virtual green room because when I said that, he looked like he was ready to jump through the screen. <laughs> I've never fought it on a first date. How dare you? They call me Mr. Robert. 
please welcome the city party at the left, Pascal Robert. <laughs> peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Peace and greetings, M. Toussaint, the Sydney Portier of the left. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Wow. I mean, you're. <laughs> I mean, you're a classy dude, is what I'm saying. You got the starchy shirts. I, I like Sydney Poitier, actually. I know. We did a whole show about your love for Sydney Poitier. Mm-hmm. Just got. No one says Pascal does not fart like my mom. Like my mom. Not, <laughs> at least not publicly. <laughs> when your mom on blast, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that's a, that's actually a good question. Um, people part on the first day. Someone should actually enter it in. When you click the link, you can actually ask that question, and we'll answer it. What link did you put up in the thing? We've got a question box, an anonymous question box. Is that what I got an email for? The question box? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me that? I did. When did I listen? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you were just eating tacos. Look, you know there's different ways to talk to me. <laughs> and if you're going to have something come into the inbox, you have to stop me and physically look at me and make sure I'm paying attention. That's what she said. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she did. And that's why we're divorced. Oh. I don't listen. Maybe I need to call in with some. <clears throat> Why won't she call back? <laughs> this show going to be dedicated to Jason, and he's going to be asking all the questions. Love one. Are you going to be the ones asking all the questions about? I'll be asking all the questions, and they're all going to revolve around why won't she call me back? Why won't she call me? No, we're not going to let you be one of Lichtenstein's sobbing blonde. I want Brad call. We're not going to do that. We're going to squeeze you out with other people's problems. I, I made a picture of her with AI art. <laughs> God. That's the new cool thing to do. Apparently it's not because it's not going to that. Maybe because the things I put in, she didn't like the Her loss. Yeah. Let's go with that. For sure. But moving on to our actual serious topic. More often than not, when housing is discussed in left circles, the answer for the homelessness problem is simple. Just put them in a house or a room or wherever. I've heard ad nauseum the statement that there are more houses than homeless people. It's just that simple, right? Well, no one ever says where all this vacant property is and who owns who owns it and how it's going to work. And is housing the only answer? Is the job done once someone gets into a home? What other resources would be needed? Who is going to provide these? The cost to battle homelessness in California alone is in the billions. And yet we still see people sleeping on the streets. Who's failing the unhoused? A recent article in the San Francisco Chronicle detailed how difficult it can be just to get a shelter bed in a post-shelter-in-place SF from the article. 
As San Francisco faces a homelessness crisis, a homeless crisis, and pressure from all sides to get thousands of people off the streets, unhoused people and shelter service providers say there is no simple way for them to get themselves into shelter anymore. When the pandemic hit, the city let people stay in shelter beds longer than 90 days to limit exposure. Officials eliminated the system that allowed unhoused people to put themselves on a wait list and instead opted for centralized placements that allowed different agencies to dole out beds, ideally to the most vulnerable. There's been some positive change over the past three years. The city ramped up outreach in the Tenderloin in particular and increased the shelter bed count, leading to a 15% drop in the number of unsheltered homeless people, which includes those sleeping on the streets. But there are still not enough spots, and the city has closed pandemic shelters, offering private hotel rooms far more appealing than group shelters. Critics say getting into scarce beds is now less accessible, and the new system leaves the process more to chance connections they completely took away the fair process of getting a bed for a night said del seymour founder of the nonprofit code tenderloin who also sits on the city's homelessness coordinating board there's no orderly way that i can tell an unhoused person to get into the shelter system to discuss this further, we have friend of show and director of the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. Please welcome Randy Shaw. Welcome. Randy, thank you for joining us. So here's my first question to you, Randy. You've been in SF for about 40 years now doing this kind of work? A little over 40, yeah. Uh, has it gotten easier? Uh, does it really matter if you have a progressive mayor or city council? Uh, I know there was an issue recently that we discussed here on this show about one of the progressive members of the city council having a hard time getting a building built by a Nordstrom's parking lot. Uh, well, I, would say, I would say the big picture and the big, 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 big picture I'll start with is that I think there's more misinformation and confusion about the homeless crisis now than there's ever been. Mm. Unfortunately, instead of people being more informed and understanding, they're less informed because they don't understand why a problem has continued for over 40 years without improvement. Actually, it's gotten worse. And they look at the money that's spent mm. and they say, well, how can we have an accomplished more? Would that be a correct assessment of how you think people also feel? We say that again. I didn't, I didn't hear you. That, you know, people are looking at, wait, we've had homelessness for 40 years. We spent billions of dollars. Why is this, why is the problem even worse after we spent all this money? And that was that, that's sort of the core thing you hear about yeah. homelessness. Yeah. And the problem, and I've written about it a hundred times, said it a hundred times, but it, you know, just doesn't sink in is that most money that's spent on homelessness in a budget in California. Mm. It's spent on housed people as rent subsidies. Mm. But instead of putting that money in what's called an affordable housing budget, mm. we call it the homeless budget. So people always say, well, wait, they take them in San Francisco, they take the, the amount of the homeless budget, divide it by the number of home unhoused people, and mm. say, well, gee, that adds up to X dollars per person. That's crazy that we can't outdo it. But they forget that, like, Every person that Tenderloin Housing Clinic houses, the 2,000 people we house, mm -hmm. are all out of the homeless budget. 
They could live in, they could be, they could have lived in their place for 20 years, but the money that subsidizes their rent comes out of the homeless budget. So the big picture is that America and the federal government has never provided the money necessary to end homelessness. We were on the cusp of doing so with the Build Back Better plan, but Senator Manchin, the Democrat we needed to do, wouldn't vote for the housing part. So the housing part, the big housing gain didn't, was excluded from the bill. So we've never spent the money in the United States to end homelessness. So it's gotten worse. Mm. Pascal, you look like you want to follow up or something. Yeah. What exactly are the, the factors that are causing it to get worse? In other words, how does the actual increase of homeless bodies in the streets correlate to the condition of the political economy in America? In other words, what is it about the nature of our economic so structure as a society that's causing this increased proliferation of homelessness? Is it well, simply the cost of living or is it more complicated than that? Well, the main reason is the gap between what millions of people can afford to pay in rent and the available rental units is, is, is it can't be bridged. So if you can't afford rent, if you don't have an income that allows you to afford rent, you're homeless. And in the, <laughs> until the 1980s, if you were on Social Security Disability or SSI or SSD, you could have no problem getting housing in San Francisco. By the late, by the mid nineties, you couldn't get housing. The rents had gone up in the SROs beyond the grant level. And that's true for, so we have, we have millions of people, many of them aren't homeless, but they're living in overcrowded units because they can't afford to have a place. We just ended up getting, America under Ronald Reagan, starting with Richard Nixon and then Reagan, Nixon took us out of the public housing business, which is the most effective way to, to most cost-effective way to house home low-income people is through public housing. We got out of that business. And then Reagan took us out of the subsidized rent business. He slashed the HUD subsidies. We've never recovered. But people wonder, well, that's that's ancient history. That's 40 years ago. Yeah, but we never got the money back. And meanwhile, as everyone knows, gentrification in major cities occurred everywhere. Rents went higher and higher, but the income disparity grew. So it used to be that 75% of eligible families for eligible federal assistance would get it. Now it's under 25%. So what happens to the rest of those families? They're in shelters or doubling up with relatives. And we should probably add, and Pascal, you can probably get into this even deeper. You know, there was a lot of failures in public housing um, during the 60s and into the 70s. So... You know, there was kind of a public cry to fix these problems. Um, so it wasn't like everybody was happy living in uh, tenement housing in uh, Pruitt-Igo. <laughs> well, no, you should see the movie, the documentary on Pruitt-Igo. Yeah. It may give you a different impression. The reality is that the government defunded public housing, mm -hmm. made it impossible conditions, and used that as a justify to justify under Bill Clinton to destroy public housing. So hmm. it, 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 this isn't like some conspiracy theory. It's an, it's, a, it's, a, it's an undisputed fact that we, that the United States did not adequately fund public housing. Conditions ran down as a result. Mm -hmm. And then people decided, well, the conditions are so bad, we should just demolish it because it's too expensive to repair. But that primarily is affected. Uh, the, the, the public housing issue primarily affects family homelessness. 
most of the complaints you get publicly, most of what you talk about are single adults, and they have a separate issue. Mm. And what issue would that be? Well, the inability to afford rent. And, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been a big push because they noticed that the 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 demogra- the nature, the description of the typical unhoused person has changed. When I started housing homeless people through the Tenderloin Housing Clinic, it was mostly overwhelmingly people who just, you know, lost their job in a warehouse and looking for work, and they ended up getting work. There was a very temporary thing. Now we have people who have often serious substance abuse problems, and, you know, there's a lot of debate about, well, is housing alone enough because people have substance abuse problems? But there's a lot of people who maintain their housing with substance abuse problems. Obviously, we have to do to deal with those problems. There's always going to be people who can't be housed because of their addiction. But mm. people could afford rent. We wouldn't have a homeless problem in this country. So, Tucson, you sounds like you want to say something. I mean, it just you cleared my sinuses, man. <laughs> they're just okay why don't people know when they're looking for someone to blame why don't they know to blame joe manchin why don't they know to blame higher levels of government that is a great question i'll give you the answer because when you read about homelessness in los angeles all the articles you know karen bass or san francisco all, all the mayors of new york eric adams the articles never mention the Republicans. De- not one Republican senator would support the Build Back Better housing bill. We've never had Republican support for housing since 2002. For the last 20 years, they're automatic no on anything funding housing. But that isn't in the story. It's about New York City and how they do their resources. It's about people in L.A. and why aren't they being more efficient using their funds? Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant strategy that the National Republican Party has done. Get everyone to blame Democratic mayors of big cities. Mm-hmm. No one, the articles rarely give the real cause. And, you know, we were speaking uh, before the Christmas break about an article that had come out uh, blaming uh, the San Francisco, what's it called? The HH, I forget what it's called in San Francisco. Oh, the uh, lawsuit on the, uh, the shelter. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about that? Well, years ago there was a ninth circuit court ruling that said that logically that you can't arrest someone for for being for camping when you haven't offered them shelter or housing Mm -hmm. obviously you're arresting them for their status so cities have always tried to say okay well we're going to offer you shelter and those and those if you turn it down and you don't you want to keep camping we can arrest you Mm -hmm. Francisco's had barely any arrests on this but a lawsuit was filed claiming that san francisco was not offering shelter and I know the per- people in charge, and I know they were offering shelter. They submitted a declaration. The judge decided. To, the judge issued a ruling against San Francisco that said people camping in public areas have the right to camp and have the right to turn down shelter and housing, mm-hmm. which is a cra- just a nut decision. That makes no sense. It's being appealed, but I think that it sh- it shows this idea that. It implies that everyone out on the streets wants shelter. Many do not want shelter mm-hmm. for various reasons, drugs, uh, the rules, dogs. But it just shows you how confused people are about what the problems are and how to solve them. I mean, camping is not a solution to homelessness. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's that's a, a very, you know, People get mad at me when I say things like that. Like, I don't think anyone really wants to live in a tent. 
Uh, I remember once. There's no bathroom. If you live, if you're in the city, hell, if you're in Oakland now in, in 2023, good luck finding a public restroom. Um, the parks don't even have them. I remember seeing a dude. I was coming off of where 24 hits 80. Oh, I lived yeah. in West Oakland, so taking West Street. And this is before they did all those campment clearings. This is probably like eight years ago. And as I was coming off, when those, when those, they had the big encampments under the freeway over there. A gust of wind blew and the tent flew up and there was a dude holding a baby in the tent. And I just flashed back to being a 21-year-old dad holding my daughter who had colic and, you know, she's crying uncontrollably. I'm crying because I can't stop her crying uncontrollably and thinking how difficult that was for me with the roof over my head, you know, and, and seeing this, this, you know, this quick image of this man holding this baby under a tent. And I was like, that's no way for anyone to live. You know, I just saw a comment from Matt L about the judge in LA and, and that raises an issue that it's really important is that voters have approved. And in this case, a judge ordered, you know, billion dollar bond issues and things to fund homelessness. And mm. then they get upset because of how much it costs to build housing or to lease a hotel. Mm -hmm. It's not cheap. And people sort of, get, I mean, LA had a ballot measure I described in my book, Generation Priced Out, called Prop HHH, which said, which yep. committed to house 10,000 homeless people. Well, LA has 60,000 homeless people, and the 10,000 would be 15%, right? Mm -hmm. You have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. But you'd see this huge backlash because people started to realize that Prop HHH wasn't solving homelessness. Well, no one ever said it was. It only was the pledge to do 10,000. And then due to the, what happened post, post ballot measure where construction costs went up, it only ended up doing 7,000. But people then feel like, well, there's no point that money isn't the problem because we passed that bill. Well, wait a minute. It only was going to do 15% of the homeless population. You know what I'm saying? There's just the, the public has extremely unrealistic expectations of the cost. And when they hear that it's a high number, they get all upset, not realizing it's lifetime rent subsidies. You can't just house people for a month. It's a permanent rent subsidy that costs money. And it doesn't even take that doesn't even take into account services that people may right. need when they're housed, because we're always you as you've said before on this show. You don't just get to pick who goes in the house randomly. You got to take the most vulnerable person. So if you if you haven't been able to live anywhere for whatever reason, you're you're first to go. And it's also true. If talk to anyone in homeless services, and they'll tell you the population is far more in need, far mm -hmm. more far more substance abuse now than five years ago. Five years ago. It, we noticed from our hotels, completely different, you know, also the average age of the people in our hotels is 58. Mm. Mm. These are people often who've been on the, these aren't job ready young 20 somethings yeah. about had a tough break. These are people who had a tough life, had a lot of hard health impacts. They're not well. And now it's up to someone to try to house them and, and keep them housed. And that's the struggle. And it's not just, 
oh, you're using drugs in a place that's not a wet facility. There's a tons of wet facilities. It's like, do we have the manpower to help you stay housed? And I feel like there's so many people because they don't get their hands dirty and truly work here. Maybe they volunteer, they protested, but making it your job, not a lot of people want to do that. Well, also, you know, every job a Tendoin housing clinic has is an in-person job. We're in an era now, like in San Francisco, we have entire state and federal government that doesn't, they don't, people don't come to work, they work at home. So a lot of people, you know, so you're asking people to come into work. And we had our people at work during COVID before there was a vaccine. Yep. You know, so, you know, that's why, you know, you, you see things on Twitter about a nonprofit industri- homeless industrial complex and all this stuff. And what's happened is the frustration the public often feels toward the you know, failure to federally fund the, process, the solution ends up, let's blame the people working on it. This nonprofit is corrupt. This nonprofit didn't do a good job. This mayor didn't do it the way they, we should, we think they should have done it. And it's really uh, very common now. And so, you know, to blame the people who are actually working to solve the problem. Because the real vic- the real villains are in Washington and you don't see them. Pascal? Yeah, Randy, I wanted to ask you, how much did the municipal pro-growth agenda of the urban regimes of the 80s and 90s help to facilitate the crisis in homelessness? Well, urban gentrification... What happened in a nutshell is in the late 1970s, when urban gentrification began across America, the demand for rent subsidies, because the SSI, you take the SSI recipient, you know, who needed now suddenly need a rent subsidy, then the Reagan administration decimates the HUD budget in 1981. So just when rent subsidies needed to expand, the federal government reduced them. So gentrification could have could have not caused homelessness had it been accompanied by a massive increase in rent subsidies. But since it wasn't, it facilitated it dramatically. And to that's true to this day. So it was a, a particular policy decision on the part of the conservatives who took in power during that period of, of heightened neoliberalism, where they cut federal subsidies for public housing that helped that pro-growth agenda to really facilitate an increase in the uh, the homeless population. Exactly. And I'll give you an example. Like Under Obama, his one big thing he did for homelessness was he, on veterans' homelessness, he created a voucher program called BASH. Mm-hmm. If you're a veteran in San Francisco, you can get an apartment now with a voucher. We have hotels that we leased started in 2016 that have all these vacancies because veterans can get apartments. They don't need SROs. Well, if we expanded that voucher program, as would have happened to build back better, we'd be having a whole different discussion about homelessness. We'd still have a homeless problem, but it'd be much less, but money didn't come. Well, let me ask you this question about the hotels, Randy. Um, when you when we first talked about the hotels, I think you looked at it as as kind of maybe a future solution. We have these, these properties that we can take over, single room occupancy. When someone, Randy, says SRO, that's what it is, a single room occupancy. Um, with the bathroom. <laughs> which which is great right um but what does 
what do these hotels look like now? I mean, I know the one I was at in East Oakland got turned over back to the original owner and is a commercial building again. So what ha- what's happened to most of these hotels in the Bay Area? I know you could talk to, about San Francisco. Maybe you can't speak to Oakland. Well, what, what happened, you mean the SIP program was a temporary program the federal government was funding. So we housed all these people, but then the money ran out. I mean, it's all money. And like right now, San Francisco, which we thought had a lot of money to solve homelessness because of a ballot measure that passed called Prop C, mm-hmm. turns out all the Prop C money has been used. So, I mean, it could come back, but the Prop C money was tied to taxing employees who worked in the city and there's fewer employees in the city. So one thing, Pascal, is that the urban gentrification trend did produce a lot of wealth in cities that could be used to fund programs for homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, the departure of those employees have, have made it harder for cities like San Francisco. But it just becomes the construction cost to build housing for the unhoused is extremely expensive. And people think you can't you can't do it for under half a million a unit, and that's cheapest. So you know, when you start adding up the numbers, a billion dollars sounds like a lot. When you start adding it up with the 60,000 homeless people in LA, a billion doesn't go that far. And, and Randy, let's, I, I, I want to kind of amplify that point you just met, said. A half million dollars per unit, not building, unit is the cheapest. That's, and many of them go seven fifty dollars or $750,000 a unit, many of, the, many of the projects. Unit. Yes. And it's not... As, Again, I want to amplify, I'm sorry, Tucson, I just want to amplify mm-hmm. this point again. You're also talking about a population that isn't going to be part of the workforce. Right. Mm. For the most part. That was very different than when we started, when Tenderwood House was going to start doing homeless programs, I used to interview every person. And so many of them, we had a program where people were getting jobs programs. And so many of our people got jobs so quickly after they got housed that I was disappointed that they weren't staying in the SRO because I wanted to bring working people back to the hotel. As soon as they got a job, they moved to an apartment. Yeah. Now, very, in, you know, and we used to hire a lot of people from our staff. There's still some people in that category, but the vast majority are not, they're just not, they're not employable. They're not looking for work. They're really trying to, half our people get an SSI eventually because they're disabled. So the, the prices that you mentioned before, is that, housing from scratch to build yeah to build it if you build, build people it. say we ought to build housing for the homeless well if if you have a 70 unit building it's going to be seven you know 50 million dollars mm-hmm. and that doesn't count certain that doesn't that's just construction not the ongoing services management you know so it's 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 really difficult for local governments to pick up that entire cost but the voters expect local mayors and supervisors and council members to get it done. They don't want to hear excuses. They don't want to hear people like me saying, you got to get get the money in federally because that's where it's always been. They, they don't want to hear that in the local mayor's election. They want to hear that you can solve it as mayor. What are you going to do as mayor to solve the problem? So we're kind of operating on a deep delusion. It's a federal problem that looks local. Right. That takes the effect local. And even at the state, you know, Gavin Newsom has given uh, more money than any prior governor of California, but Jerry Brown was governor for eight years, never spent $1 on affordable housing, even though the state was flush with cash and the media didn't criticize him for it. I criticized him, but no one in the, like the major newspapers did. Here we have a governor of California 
during a big boom period, not spending any money on affordable housing. And he gets away with it politically. Well, I guess that story is not sexy. Um, we do have a super chat here. Thank you, Virtuoso, for the super chat. I was in Berkeley, California, and saw homeless encampments along a street called Martin Luther King Jr. Way. At the time, I thought it was ironic. Yes, there is uh, homeless encampments. Well, you know, Berkeley's done a lot better than other cities. And it's also true that a number, you know, we end up, people be critical in Berkeley or Oakland or L.A. or, or you know, San Francisco. But then we have all these cities that, really make no effort to house their unhoused population and pretty much use their police to push them to those cities that have services. Mm -hmm. So a lot of cities in California have gotten away with providing no services. Would you say those cities are kind of uh, more bougie cities, nicer yeah, cities? Absolutely. And, and Barbara. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's been a recent controversy about the housing element in California because the governor is making places like Atherton build apartments and they don't want to build apartments but you know they're taking a hard line we'll see what happens when somebody's in some you know there's all, all around the state these these affluent communities are trying to avoid their responsibilities atherton well, is a very rich suburb outside of san jose for those that don't know um jason gave us a bit of reading to do so in one of the articles i believe it was san francisco where a library was being converted into housing for uh, the unhoused, that's a, that's just maybe it is. I think that it's, was also, it's a sand. That was also during the probably the, all those what they call sip hotels are 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 done. Uh, you know, a person just uh, posted a note about publicly owned housing. There is a bill in the legislature to create social housing in California, which is very which is really where we need to go. We should have never gotten out of the public housing business. Richard Nixon got us out and then Democrats didn't argue because they have all the problems they were hearing from their, their constituents. But the cheapest way to do in the homeless problem is build more public housing. And so this social housing is a strategy that Alex Lee is sponsoring from San Jose and hopefully it'll pass. It's, it's an uphill battle because when you actually get in the legislature, people start thinking, do we really want the government to build housing? You know, governments aren't good at doing anything, right? Mm. And that's what that's that's what you hear. What do you mean by social housing? Well, it's based on the European model, like they have in Austria, where they have in the same building affluent tenants, market rate tenants, and low income tenants, and they use the rents from the affluent tenants to help subsidize the low income tenants instead of the government subsidizing it. It can't really happen without any government assistance, but it means it's a great idea because you mix you mix income groups in the same building and help mm -hmm. cross subsidizing. It, that's how it, that's how Austria and much of Europe, Copenhagen, that's how they do their housing. Isn't America, there a, isn't there a new housing. unit over there by the new Warrior Stadium like that, Randy? I know they had like a uh, a lottery or something. You, there was like one or two units that they were they were going to be. Low income. Well, that's, that the, that's the BMR units where they have below market rent units and inclusionary yeah. units. This would be the whole project. It would be built by the government. The state of California would create an entity to build housing. And it has to be cheaper than doing it any other way, really, ultimately. But the public has such horror stories about the public housing, Pruitt Ego, and all the stuff you talked about, Cabrini Green, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, it's politically, it's going to be a tough, tough row. 
Pascal, do you want to say something? You look mad. No, no I'm not mad. Why are you always asking? The, the question I want to ask you, Randy, is that uh, based on the articles that we had to, re to read for the for this program, there are certain cities in California, particularly, uh, I believe, San Francisco, that are seeing fluctuations in terms of the numbers of uh, the unhoused or the homeless. Some are actually seeing some decrease, while cities like San Diego are seeing an increase. How do you explain the different actual numberings of housing of unhoused in those different cities and is this, a, is this a consequence of certain policies that are being taken or just simply the geographical realities of where those cities are well you raise a very big point that people don't like to talk about which is that you know san francisco gets criticized for like wait you spend all this money and you have the same size homeless population Hey, but they the city housed a record number of people in the last two years. A record they've added more permanent housing than they've ever added, but new people keep becoming homeless. And in our society, when housing costs remain high, and if people can't get help in the city they're living in, they come to the cities that offer them help. LA is an interesting example because the whole mayor's race that just happened was all about homelessness, was like the issue. Yeah. Karen Bass's entire mayoralty in LA is based on whether she can the hand homelessness under control. And, and people feel she's going to be Garcetti 2.0. Well, it's interesting because Garcetti started off great and then he just ran ran out of steam. I think he was beaten down by the opponents because it's very easy to be negative about problems. Uh, it's very easy to say this program, you can find always find this problem that didn't work out here or this thing went over budget or that thing had a corrupt person. You know, but and so it's it's frustrating. She's starting off with a lot of momentum, but how's LA gonna afford to do sixty thousand people? Well, they're also running into the problem of you know that leak causing some people not to show up to see. We talked about this on the show. Um, I think Kevin DeLeon, his <laughs> district is District Fourteen, I think it is, which is where downtown is. So he has the Cecil Hotel which the Cecil's like, we're going to, we lost all this money being a private thing and trying to get public funds. Let's just go all the way with it and just get public funds. And they can't fill it. It's, a, See, it's like a quarter you full. An issue. I'll tell you something, Jason. We have the same problem in San Francisco. People might be surprised to learn there's hundreds of vacancies in our permanent supportive housing system because of inefficiencies in service, in delivery. It's, it's crazy. The Cecil is two-thirds vacant. They just had a big story about it. And... So, but see, the problem is, even if so people people will, will focus on that as they should. I mean, there is legitimate problems with how cities are operating homeless programs. Don't, don't get me wrong, but even if we did everything perfectly, we wouldn't have the money, and that's where it gets to be difficult because we end up with the, focusing on the wrong targets. We we don't get beyond the hotel Cecil to yeah. say. Where's the money going to come from? Now, they're trying to do stuff through administration because the Republican House is not going to support housing money, but they're trying to do some stuff. But what's what other pro you know, it's like our healthcare system. We're still cobbling that together after all these years. You know, <laughs> America is incapable of solving its major social problems because we don't spend the money on it. Is it because we don't spend the money on it or because we like the way it is? You know what's interesting? A lot of wealthy people, like I don't think Republicans like seeing homeless people on the street. I don't think when they go to the theater, they like to see that. But they tend to either blame the local Democratic mayor or blame the people for choosing to be homeless, right? Mm. I mean, you know, for decades, for decades, 
I used to have to explain why people haven't chosen to live in a tent. Yeah. That was not, a, like, it wasn't like, wait, suddenly in the 1980s, everyone decided to live in a tent. No. But people believe that. Mm-hmm. I read my first book, The Activist Handbook, I did a whole thing about how just having to disprove that point that people just didn't wake up suddenly in the 1980s and decide they want to live in a tent. But people believe that. They, they call it the residue of the counterculture. Oof. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a question, Randy, that's really kind of, um, it's a kind of macro political question. There's always this perception about California that conservative use this kind of culture war politics. The California is some, particularly San Francisco, is some kind of left wing, uh, uh, ungovernable mess, and that everything that is the is wrong with left governance is demonstrated in California, in San Francisco, in the Bay, and so on and so forth. And what I find particularly frustrating about those narratives is that they act as if somehow capitalism doesn't exist in California and that <laughs> the forces of capital don't exist in those cities. Can you explain to me why that narrative is so persistent and yeah. how we can actually fight to counteract that narrative? Well, if there's anyone listening on the show that thinks Gavin Newsom's on the left, uh, you haven't been following his career. <laughs> I don't think anyone on this show could possibly believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I look at these governors who, in the big states, we haven't, Jerry Brown was terrible. And he didn't, he didn't, he was, he was against rent control. He was against inclusionary housing. So, you know, when has California had a left governor? I don't know. I, I don't think, I think it was 19, James Rolfe in, in the thirties, but I don't think we've had a left governor. I'll tell you what's worth looking at, Pascal, is someone who I think is very progressive, Tina Kotek, the governor, the new governor of, of Oregon. Okay. Let's look at what she does, because I would consider her the most progressive governor in America. And let's see what she does. She was great on getting rent control for Oregon, a great housing person. Let's see what she does. But, uh, you know, the rest of these governors, are they're, they're no leftists. But how would you suggest that we counteract this persistent allegation presented by the right that California and its various municipalities are examples of left political failure. Well, actually, in a lot of ways, California is an example of left political success because the labor movement has been incredibly successful at getting wages raised, working conditions improved, collective bargaining rules changed for the positive. So I think, and you know, I think if, if you want to look at the positive, organized labor has done a great job for promoting left ideals in California. But the governor that runs the state, and he signs a lot of these bills, mm-hmm. but, you know, he's, he's, I guess, compared to Ron DeSantis, he's on the left. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, does, does, does San Francisco still have the thing where people that work in the food service industry get health care that's done? I'm not sure. But we have the, you know, you, you can work the smallest number of hours to qualify for health care of it probably anywhere. You get lifetime health care after a certain amount. I mean, we have great benefits. But the reality is, is that, you know, states like New York, which are often paired, they have not had a progressive governor 
I can't even remember the last time. I mean, uh, their current Democratic governor is terrible. So, uh, you know, just terrible. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard to find progressive governors around the country. Before we go, I do want to speak about New York real quick because it's something we talk about on this show quite often, and that's the mayor of New York, Eric Adams, who actually ran on a very uh, a Democrat that ran on a somewhat conservative, uh, as Tucson and I joked before the show, fascist adjacent ticket, and he's proposing a, a law where he wants to um, find mentally ill, unhoused people and put them where I don't remember. Was it hospital Tucson or was it? I thought it was hospitals. Away. Hospitals Let's put them away. Just away. Away. <laughs> That's really what it is. And I, and I know you've had to. That was a pretty big national story, and I'm sure it came across your your uh, your news feed as well. What is your take on that? And is there a way to approach Adams, those mainly? One thing that I think is very interesting about Eric Adams, he was elected due to overwhelmingly support from blacks and Latinos. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the thing where there's often a disconnect between the white left the whiter the left and the working class black and latino community because they went big for eric adams mm-hmm. and his his deficiencies were well known in that campaign mm-hmm. uh i think there's a lot of support for that plan that he comes i think people around the country are really alarmed by the disoriented mentally ill people they see roaming and they i think the aclu position of well, keep them on the street is a minority uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I realize, so I think you're going to see other cities adopting it. But what happens, Jason Pascal, is that the number of people actually ever, you know, apprehended in these things tend to be really tiny. San Francisco had a big controversy about a conservatorship law. Finally passed at the end of the first year, one person had been helped. Uh, what, what people see in a lot of San Francisco, though, when people see real and, and the subway incidents in New York where a disoriented person pushed someone and killed them in a subway, yeah, freaks people out. But I, I would say the big picture that people can walk away from this is keep pushing for more housing money and 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 don't think that the short-term solutions of temporary shelters and those aren't solutions. Mm-hmm. We have to invest in long-term solutions to homelessness. And it's great that Karen Bass closes an encampment in Venice and puts people a hotel room for a short time. But at some point, where are they going to go, those people? You got to have a place for them. I mean, they just try to do that in People's Park. I don't know if you followed the People's Park oh, yeah. uh, situation. A good friend of mine was working on that project to, uh, to house people. And uh, I asked her, and I'll say it again on this show. I want to keep saying it so people understand my frustration. I said, Annie, I don't say her name. I said, what do you, what do you, I said, what do you need? What can I mention on the show? What do you need? And she goes, people. We don't have any people here to work. Well, you make a great point. And we, until we got our salary significantly raised across the board to this last budget, uh, as I said, when people look for jobs now in the Bay Area, particularly, there's a lot of stay at home jobs. And they'd rather take those jobs. Mm-hmm. And so to get people in the human services, they have to be very dedicated. So that's why it's not helpful when people are constantly criticizing the nonprofit sector when these folks are doing the best they can under difficult circumstances, like your friend. By the way, to show you how crazy things are, that just I have to mention this if I have, if I have one minute, which mm-hmm. is that 
is a lawsuit to stop housing at People's Park. And the legal theory is that students, there's, there's housing for the unhoused, and there's also student housing on the site, two different buildings. The legal argument is that students create noise. And they think that's an environmental impact that UC Berkeley failed to assess. One of the court appeal judges two weeks ago in the oral argument said he saw no difference between students making noise and pollution coming from cars. Hmm. This guy is a court of appeal judge in California. Hmm. And we wonder why we can't get housing built with these kind of judges. Can you believe that? Hmm. Students making noise as a students pollution? Students making noise in a very busy Times has an editorial criticizing it today, but I mean, this is the this is the world we live in. These are the people in charge, judges. Also, before we leave, I want to ask this question to Pascal and Toussaint and and Randy, Randy, longtime leftist. You know, um, for those of, for those that watch the show that are you know fans of Adolf Reed, um, once Adolf found out that Randy was coming on, he goes, "Oh, Randy Shaw, tell him I said what's up." <laughs> you know, just to let you know, Randy goes goes way back with with people that we we uh, we like on this show. Um, what does that say about the state of the left? Everyone has something to say, usually a slogan around uh, the unhoused, but it seems like people like you, Randy, are left to deal with this on your own, and often definitely uh understaffed in the sense of there's just not a lot of support well let me let me make this one point that i want i'm glad you brought it and gave me a chance to make which is that there's always been a part of the left that's anti-institutional anti-government they were against the vietnam war watergate you know there's just like government is the problem and government often is the problem but socialists are generally see government as part of a solution and you want to get the right people in government and I think around homelessness, we have people who just assume that whatever the government, there's someone on the left, whatever the government's doing, it's wrong. The homeless person's always right. Their account of what happens is correct. Mm -hmm. the, the government employee is a liar and is making stuff up. And they kind of become very anti-government, the left. And yet you want to be, uh, you call yourself a socialist, but you're always, all you do is criticize government. Well, government is what implements socialism. So there needs to be some thought about that as to what kind of socialism the left wants. Mm -hmm. mm. That's, that, that, that statement can take us into a whole complicated area about ideological sectarianism, uh, what kind of uh, leftist you are, worldview, you know, because there are whole segments of, this, of leftists who are Absolutely against the state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a so how do they then propose to solve this problem? I mean, Randy brings up an excellent point. Some people just have that kind of almost um, condescending approach, I think. Just will just listen to the people. They know what's right and wrong. It's like, well, nah, I get what you're trying to say to a degree, mm -hmm. but have you ever worked with the people or listened to them? Because I remember this one woman came to me. She goes, these Mexicans is plotting to kill me. They speak in that crazy talk. And I was like, I don't, I just think they're talking to each other about where they're going to clean next. I don't think they want to hurt you. Man. <laughs> and she went and she hit somebody. Wow. You know, it's. Uh, yeah. 
I don't even want to say anymore. We can have that on another show. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we can. I mean to leave it hanging there, Pascal. No, no, it's it, it's it's um because listen, I, there are people who will say that well, we can have workers' councils self-manage the problems of the state. We don't need to have any kind of hierarchy or professional organization because the state is innately hierarchical and corrupt, and we have to turn the power back to the people and so on and so forth. And I think we all know what type of ideological tendency we're talking about who argues this. And I understand the controversy and the problems of the nation state. The nation state is a coercive mechanism that is hierarchical by nature and is also very much, you know, requires punitive mechanisms to get things, to get things effectuated. But at the same time, to assume that individuals divorced from any kind of cooperative state mechanism have the capacity to implement policy on a small scale without any form of hierarchy, I think it's kind of unrealistic. Beautifully said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll Just leave it on that. Happy. Thank you for having me. Randy, thank you so much for coming on. I know it's late for you and you got a busy day ahead of you. Thank you so much, Randy. Randy thank Shaw, you. Director of the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. Randy, take care. Have a very good night, and hopefully, I will. Well, the next time I come up north, I'm I'm gonna make it. A next point time you stop you. by the Tendal and you make sure you let me know. We go out, hang out. Oh, my son would love that. My son okay. would love that. Bye bye. Take care, Randy. Thank you, Randy. Hi, Randy. Randy Shaw. Gotta love Randy Shaw. Please, if you guys get a chance, get his book, Generation Priced Out. Someone asked for the news articles. Uh, Tucson, you think you can post those yes. in the comments a little later? Awesome. I will absolutely do that. And if absolutely. you guys hit a paywalled one, hit me up and uh, maybe I can send it to you unpaywalled. Jason Paywall Miles. Jason sending us. Unpaywalling stuff, Miles. <laughs> Only certain ones. Only certain ones. Um, what do you guys think of Randy? Randy Shore is always great. His knowledge of, of housing policy is extensive. And um, yeah. he knows the left very well. He has uh, answers. That's he so has answers. amazing. You know, you know what always makes me sad when we do these shows? Hmm. View numbers are always low. We have 120 right now. Oh, that's not. We, we, we do better. Yeah, but this is over 100, and I think that's still pretty good. You know, it's, you know we don't do enough drama, apparently. We need to make it drama full. What podcaster would you like to see homeless? <laughs> Get some gossip going. Someone is asking Pascal, how's the homeless situation in Miami? It's, it's not as bad as in California, but it's pretty bad in northern Miami. I mean, Florida has its own issues. That's mm -hmm. true. But the thing is, Florida is such like a reactionary state. I mean, the cops are just like, knock people on their head and just be like, get the hell out of here. We did get a super chat question and maybe uh, Jason, you can answer it. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts? This is from Ken Cowens. What are your thoughts on the trend in cities to turn vacant offices into housing? Love it. I love when people can take standing structures and turn it into housing. If it makes sense and it's not done extremely cheap and, and crappy, then I love it. 
right? That was a great thing about the hotels. That was a great thing about the Cecil. The Cecil's a hotel that's built around the turn of the century. And it's a fabulous structure. Mm -hmm. It's been standing strong through all those earthquakes, right? Um, so if you have these office buildings that are like retrofitted, ready to go, proper plumbing, because it's an office building, it's probably got better industrial plumbing. Uh, and you need that. Like you guys have no idea how much you need that. And um, I'm all for it. Push for more. Let's push for more cities taking over uh, hotels to to house population because it's it's an instant good room. I mean, people really don't like shelters, and Randy's right. These shelters are temporary. Who wants to live with the precarity of trying to find a room? Because some people do work, and you don't have all day to hustle to find a room. So, it's a uh, I like that strategy, just like I liked the hotel strategy. But as Randy said, it ran out of money. Mm-hmm. And then I think also people ran out of caring. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask, do you do you feel that um, conversations about BlackRock buying up trailer homes and all of this kind of thing, do you feel that's something people want to talk about in order to distance themselves from the from the actual problems yeah because i don't think people understand how trailer homes work i mean the reason why blackrock is buying up trailer parks and this has been happening for a while it's not a new phenomenon um if you think it's a new phenomenon then you should probably read more financial news um but um who's the rich guy from uh, nebraska Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett has been preaching the gospel of buying up trailer parks for some time. It's a great investment. It is extremely low maintenance, and you make a mint off the space rent. That's ultimately what you're paying for in a trailer it's park. The land they're buying. They're buying the land. Under the trailer. You you lease the land right to mm-hmm. to these people for whatever the terms are, and they move their trailer or mobile home on that land and they pay jesus when i was in real estate finance it was like 750 for a space for a double wide and one of the things that people were finding was because it's so maintenance free there's open sewage problems everywhere people literally living next to massive open sewage ditches and you know, and the disease followed. So it's kind of the new slumlording. And it's not just BlackRock. It's also, you know, wannabe um, land-owning millionaires, people that watch like a Tony Robbins video or something like that, that, you know, okay, I found the secret now. It's buying a, a trailer park because I can just buy the land and walk away ultimately. Mm-hmm. And not have to care about it. So, trailer parks and the unhoused aren't necessarily one and the same. Now, in Oakland, and I can't speak for more cities, they were doing a thing having RV encampments because there's so many people that were buying older RVs. I don't know if you guys know, RVs don't retain their value. Mm. So, a used RV is relatively cheap. So, 
in Craigslist in the Bay Area for the last well, probably like six or seven years or so, RVs are sold as literally mobile homes, right? And we don't have the weather that you guys have in places like New York or Chicago where your RV should be weatherized for that. We don't get wow. freezes as much, and L.A. is even better for that. So what they were doing was setting up literal parking lots for RVs, putting bathrooms in them, security guards. But, you know, they also went the way of end up being kind of horrible little spots that people didn't like to have near them either. Fascinating. Fascinating. Misery business. You said misery business? Mm-hmm. Like the song? Like the song. You ready for some champagne? You ready for some, you ready for some champagne? Yeah, now we got to play that song as we go into the champagne room. What's what is what is it? Uh, Paramore. Paramore. Can you sing that for us, Tucson? Can we karaoke you doing a misery business by Paramore? I don't even remember the words. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. Once once you hear Haley, whatever her name is, belting that out, you'll just jump right in. <laughs> I'm sure. This is the only time you're gonna hear anybody on the show say Paramore. Oh. <laughs> Well, we might next month for Valentine's Day. There's nobody black in Paramore. Just the word Paramore. Oh, just the word Paramore. Got yeah. it. Don't forget to send us your your questions, your relationship questions that are actually Jason's problems, and you're just gonna <laughs> resubmit them. And we have a new feature for the Champagne Room that I previewed with the TIR staff and the young people on the TIR staff, Stefan and Quinn, said this is a great idea. Um, so what, what, what feature is that? I didn't get the memo. Oh, you got the memo, uh, uh, Negro Damas. You just wasn't reading it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this DJ that is very popular with you young people in drama. His name is DJ Vlad. And many moons ago, oh, yeah, I don't remember that. he was a regular <laughs> DJ. And a good friend of mine who was a relatively successful Bay Area rapper was also a buyer at, uh, at Rasputin's. And he knew Vlad well. I think, I think they still know each other like, pretty well. He's a screen, this guy's a screenwriter now. Anyway... Good friend, a great friend of mine. We all went to school together, another Albany High connection. We did music together. Um, we used to go to, to Vlad's parties that he used to DJ. And so he had a mailing list back in the day. If you remember, you write your email on a mailing list. I filled out a Vlad mailing list a million trillion years ago, and I still get these emails. And it's the only way I know what hip hop, but other than working at festivals, I guess, you know, younger people listen to. And I was, I got to eat. We were joking about Nia Long. I'll, I'll be, this is more champagne room talk, but you know, we'll give, we'll give it to you for free. Um, I have a bit of a crush on Nia Long. Nia Long can do no wrong. Apparently she broke through your uh, racial ambiguity paywall. I'm about to say, man. She's a black. She, you know she's black, right? 
four three minutes. You know she's black, right? You <laughs> God damn. Uh, yeah, man. Yes, she's black as shit. He said it like five times. Yeah. What? You're black as hell. Yeah. How does that work for you? It works great. Wow. Yeah. Well, Chocolatey as shit. The scene in Boys the Hood. Jesus Christ. Anyway. DJ Vlad had something about Nia Long. It was literally about pa- it was no joke. Pascal said, We're talking about Nia Long, and he goes, um, you know, Nia Long he got in some drama with some basketball guy. So the first thing I see in my email box is Nia Long spills the beans on blah blah blah. I was like, wow, this is so crazy. And then I started going down the list of the other things that they're talking about. I was like, I have no idea what any of these words even mean. Mm. And so I said, would it be a fun feature? If we did a news feature where we go down the list of, of news topics on TJ Vlad's site and try to figure out what is going on. <laughs> Somebody handed um, Young Thug Percocet in court. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> like, they don't even care. Nope. You don't care. Someone says Jason likes dark chocolate if it's the right brand. That is so funny. <laughs> There's literal funny. truth to that. There is literal truth to that. We're going to do a deep dive on Lil Boosty. We're going to wipe them down. So I'm going to, so in the champagne room, I'm going to read the headlines and. I want Pascal to comment on these news headlines. Because I have no idea who any of these people are. I don't know what an NBA young boy is. Yo, lucky you. (laughs) So this is learning. I'm just learning about the scandals of the passport boys. The passport boys? You don't know who the passport boys are? Is that a rap group? So you don't know passport boys, boys. Passport boys are a movement. A movement. Hey. <laughs> passport boys are men who take their passport. It's basically sexual sex tourism. They take they, they go overseas to find women that they claim they're gonna f- marry because the domestic pickings are slim. It's because the women in America are not quote unquote docile enough. Too mouthy. Oh. Yeah. Well, that sounds gross. But anyway, <laughs> passport boys, they just sound gross. Boys, indeed. Passport bros, excuse me, passport bros. Oh, that, hey, not better. Not better. Steve has some tea to spill. Steve has some tea on passport boys? Mm-hmm. Is Steve a passport boy? Uh, from what I heard. Passport bros. Steve was like, I'm tired of you uppity Americans. Steve I want a was... woman that's happy with indoor plumbing. Steve was like, I'm tired of the left. I moved to Japan and I only watch anime now. I was like, what? <laughs> he might be a passport bro. Oh, Steve says he opened the phone lines and he will talk about passport bros. 
They wear Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you so much again, Randy Shaw. Um, this mm-hmm. was this was another good show. I just finished sure. my next piece for sublation. Um, that's how I felt when I got done. Yeah. Hella felt like that. Tomorrow night, we're bringing back uh pop life. I'll be speaking with filmmaker um, Bill Cody, who's had a very interesting life from film, music, and he worked in uh, politics for years. And now he's finally retired uh, back in his native Georgia. We're going to talk about uh, the documentary he made about the Athens scene. So if you guys are familiar with bands like the B-52s and R.E.M., uh, he made a documentary documenting them, but he also worked in L.A. City Council. Did he have some tea to spill? He definitely sent me a message watching this show about what Randy had to say. So it will be a fun episode. Bill's been on the show before when we did a, a show about music with uh, with Conan. So that'll be uh, tomorrow. And are we doing our Left Reckoning news show Thursday? No, we are talking about the vid. What vid? Don't get us demonetized. Not that vid. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Okay. Couldn't remember when that was. Sorry and about then, that. Then Saturday, we might have a return of Marcus of the Left Flank Vets. <gasps> Word? What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Marcus was at the New York show. Yes, he was. Marcus was. Are we talking? Are we talking sports on Saturday? We're talking sports on Sat on Saturday. Paul Paul Prescott said he's going to try to come through. Oh, as well. we're talking about the two Negro quarterbacks. Two Negro quarterbacks, man. Yeah. Someone says, "Is Jason going to discuss his James Brown face?" I'll discuss it right now. Mm. Uh, I'm going through my James Brown face. Uh, I will be supporting right wing candidates for office, and I'll You'll be, be beat women too. Beat woman? No. Only well, only the mouthy ones. Ooh. They'll be white. All be white. <laughs> they will all be white. It will all be white. R.I.P. Brown. <laughs> R.I.P. Jason's Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> How mad would people be if they saw me with a white chick and they really believed that I was really like beating the shit out of them? Oh my god! Like, oh, great for I the ratings. People thought I was with Jordan at the live show. Make sure you hit like, everyone. Horrible. Hit like, subscribe, tell a friend. So the link for the champagne room is already up. (laughs) And I can't wait to read these headlines to Pascal and Toussaint. It's going to be good. Toussaint, we're also going to open up the champagne room with Toussaint karaokeing. Oh, God. Misery business. Coerce, coerce, karaoke. Coerced, yes. Someone said, "Did Jason coerce you into doing that?" Mm-hmm. Sam Sparrow karaoke. Yes, yes, yes. I did. Yes, he did. I'm the. This is this is not just my James Brown phase. It's also my Ike Turner phase. And on that note, we are out. out. <laughs>